So today we're starting a new sermon series in the book of Ephesians. Um, and today really we're just, I'm just asking the question, where do you start? What's it all about? Some of you I know are quite familiar with this book. For some of you it will be brand new. Um, so, uh, thank you, cheers mate. Um, if, uh, if it is, um, if it is um, some of it is familiar, then uh, please bear with those for whom it is all brand new. There are some in that situation. Uh, and this morning, all we're going to do is look at the beginnings of this church in Ephesus. This letter to the Ephesians was written to churches in Ephesus and that region. So we're going to look today at how it all started. So before we get to the Bible reading, which is going to be not in Ephesians actually, but in Acts chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible with you, um, we're in Acts chapter 19 this morning. Uh, and before we get to the Bible reading, I just want to give you some, some of the background, okay? Um, so we're, we're about AD 54, okay? AD 54. So it's about 20 odd years after Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, um, and the Apostle Paul, uh, who is the main character really in the New Testament after Jesus, the Apostle Paul is probably, I guess, the main character. He's a he's a missionary. He's a church planter, and he's on um, what we refer to as his third missionary journey. Okay, now I love maps. Okay, I don't know how well you can see this. But, um, so this is the Apostle Paul, he went on these big journeys around, um, uh, around this area. So this is Syria here, this is Israel and Palestine down here, all, where all the conflicts going on in Gaza down here. This is Egypt. Uh, this is what we call modern day Turkey here. And, um, and this is Greece here, uh, Macedonia at the top here and... Somewhere else. Gets a bit vague after that, I must admit. Uh, some of you will know. Um, so, um, uh, so Paul is on this big missionary journey. Now, it, when he went on one of these journeys, this wasn't for a weekend. You know, like if you want to go to Rome or something or, or, or Corinth, you can go there for a weekend these days, can't you, on an aeroplane? Well, obviously that wasn't an option for him. This would have taken years. It probably took about three and a half or four years. Thousands of miles. And travel in those days was dangerous. I mean, I think we just don't really understand, most of us, just how dangerous travel was in those days. Uh, I mean, there were, there were thieves. I mean, just Paul, Paul mentioned somewhere else in the New Testament about, about the danger from crossing rivers. And you think, well, that's not really a danger that I face, is it? You know, we have bridges in the... You know, in those days, crossing rivers was pretty dangerous. Um, he talks about being hungry and cold and, and feeling exhaustion. He was shipwrecked at least three times. Um, he also talks about the danger from hostile people. People who don't like the message that he was bringing. So he describes being beaten with rods, which doesn't sound much fun. Uh, he describes being whipped at least five, on at least five different occasions. Just constant trouble. And in Acts chapter 19, Paul gets to Ephesus. So you can see his journey here. It starts in Antioch in Syria, travels across here, and th there's Ephesus there in the middle, um, um, in what we now call Turkey. Uh, and, and in those days, that wasn't Turkey, of course. That was what the Romans called Asia, 
Okay, now when you think of Asia today, that's not where we mean, is it? We think of Asia as being a completely different place. But in Roman times, that was Asia. Okay, and the capital city of Asia was Ephesus. Okay, that was the biggest city, about a quarter of a million people. Um, it was the most important city. Uh, and it had three very, very important buildings in it. Now, I really, really... Has anybody been to the ancient city of Ephesus? They don't, you been, Pete? Oh, you swine. You've <laughs> been as well? Great, nice one, Ken. I would love to go. I plan to go. Um, I, I wanted to go, but I couldn't make it happen just yet. But I will try and go sometime soon. But I want to show you some pictures. All right, so three places you need to know about. This is the first one. Spectacular ruins. This is the Library of Celsus. Uh, and in fact, it's on the background of my slides as well, actually. Um, it, it was the third largest library in the ancient world, okay? And it's the only one that has any remains of it left. It contained 12,000 scrolls, which at those, that time, that was remarkable, you know? And for that reason, it was a huge centre of learning, of education, okay? That's the first place. The second one is this. The theatre of Ephesus, with seating for 24,000 people, which is a lot. I mean, that's a lot even by today's standards, doesn't it? That's a lot. There are not many places can seat more than 24,000 people, even in our day. Spectacular place. And the third one is the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the, wonder, the seven wonders of the ancient world. So you may have heard of it. Arguably, it's the the greatest and most wonderful. There's one um, ancient historian said he travelled to see all seven of them and this one was the best. Okay, So, the, it, spectacular place. Um, 137 metres by about 70 um, metres and because I'm me, I thought, well, I wonder how that compares to Stoke City. Uh, so, there you go. So, that's Stoke City football ground and that's the Temple of Artemis, how big it is. So, as you can see, it's a big place. For those of you who've been to Stoke City football ground, or any other football ground for that matter, it's a pretty massive, pretty massive place and it was made of white marble, absolutely spectacular. Part of the reason I mentioned those things is sometimes when we think back to ancient times, our assumption is that in ancient times they were very primitive and we've moved a long way past that. <laughs> they weren't. They were very sophisticated, some of them. Very sophisticated. The architecture, I mean, you know, every courtroom in, in the Western world copied <laughs> the Temple of Artemis architecture, didn't it? You know, it, these things are hugely um, influential. And they, they love beautiful things. They loved extravagant temples and wonderful architecture and beautiful things and impressive people and great displays of wealth. They weren't as much different to us as you might think they were. And they have the same hopes and visions and dreams and they have the same troubles that we face as well. They weren't much different from us. And into that, the Apostle Paul turns up one day and Carol's going to read it for us. So we're in Acts chapter 19. And Carol's going to read for us from verse 1 down to verse 20. So verse 1... While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, 
Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly malingered the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Thank you, Carol. That's great. So, um, keep your Bible open. So, um, we're just going to unpack that passage a little bit. So, in verse 1 of there, Paul found some disciples. He's going through, um, through the interior of modern-day Turkey. He comes to Ephesus and he finds some disciples there, and we're told how many at the end of verse 7. There's a handful of them, about, about 12. 12 disciples, 12 followers. 
And he says to them in verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Well, they believed they were, they were following the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. They believed in the living God. But as Paul probes a bit deeper, uh, it turns out that they're followers of John the Baptist. If you know your New Testament, uh, you, you'll know that the, the message of John the Baptist was basically that, that people are sinful and we stand before a holy God and we must repent. We must turn away from sin and, and get right with God and wait for the Messiah. That was basically John's message. Get right with God and wait for the Messiah. But that wasn't enough for Paul. Okay, So that's what these, these, this group of, of people believed. They're, they, they're godly people. They want to do what is right. They want to serve God. But they're still waiting for the Messiah, I think. And that's not enough for Paul. So the starting point in this church plant, so we're looking at a new church plant in Ephesus. The starting point is to have a team of people for whom Jesus is the very centre Jesus is the very centre. It seems that they didn't really understand the gospel. They didn't really understand Jesus. They didn't really understand the good news at all. They didn't have the spirit. So Paul explains to them that, that John the Baptist had said, you know, basically wait for the Messiah, and until then, repent, turn away from your sin and wait for Jesus. But, but now he's come, he's come. So put your faith in Jesus, put your trust in in Jesus, We're not waiting for anybody else. Just put your faith in him for what he's already done. I can't help thinking that sometimes we have people a bit like that in church. Who believe in God. You know, you believe in God. I don't have to convince you. I don't have to give you some ontological proofs or something about the existence of deity. You know, you believe in God already. You believe that God is holy and righteous and good, that he's our maker. And you see sin all around. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you fall short of God's glory. But maybe what you don't understand is that you need Jesus to get out of that problem. Maybe today there are those who, who think, in order to grow in my faith, what I need to do is try a bit harder to be a better person. You know, and January is the worst time of the year for that. Because everyone, well, a lot of people have New Year's resolutions, don't they? Uh, and Christians do that sometimes. Like, okay, I'm going to try a bit harder this year. I'm going to be a better person this year. Well, the problem is you'll never be good enough. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You'll, you, you'll, you'll never be a good enough person to, to match up to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. What, what you actually need is to receive the gift of righteousness that Jesus has already won for you at the cross. You know, Jesus lived a perfect life and you've got no chance of living a perfect life. He lived a perfect life and offers that perfect life to you today. If you want to impress God, you'll fail. 
If you're just going to try harder and, and be a better person, you'll never be good enough. You'll never be anywhere near as impressive as Jesus is. What we've actually got to do is give up on self and say, I, I can't do it. I, I, I'm not enough. I, it doesn't matter how hard I try, I cannot be good enough. What I need to do is to run to him. I need to go to Jesus. Admit my inability. And ask him for his help. That's when the spirit comes. That's when, that's when people are born again as a Christian. When you give up on yourself and flee to Jesus. So let me ask you, are you born again today? <coughs> Are you born again today? Are you trusting Jesus alone for your salvation? I think a lot of people might say, yeah, I'm trusting Jesus, but that's not really the question. The question is, are you trusting Jesus alone, only him, and nothing else? And not yourself, but only him. That's what makes a Christian. Paul's focus from the very start is to build a team who know Jesus. Before they'd received John's baptism, they were aligned with John. And now, now they're baptised in the name of Jesus. They're devoted to Jesus and his message of grace and forgiveness. And that's when the Spirit comes. That's when, uh, when they give themselves to Jesus. So the question, is Jesus at the centre of your faith today? Is Jesus at the centre of your faith today? Second thing, uh, he forms a team who are devoted to evangelism. You know, they've got an evangelistic strategy. And they try two different approaches, actually. So the first approach you see in verse 8. Um, uh, Paul preaches in the synagogue for three months. So the Apostle Paul is from a Jewish background. So the natural place to talk about faith is in the Jewish religious building. So that's what he does. He does that for three months. Um, and you think, well, did that work? Was that successful? Well, in verse 9, we find out. It might have been moderately successful, but it says this in verse 9. Some of them who were there, some of them in the synagogue, the Jewish background people, some of them became obstinate and refused to believe. And actually, they publicly maligned the way. So actually, they're... they're Spreading rumour and gossip that's untrue, trying to cause trouble for Paul. You know, sometimes when, when people don't believe, sometimes they just need more time. <laughs> sometimes they just need a bit more explanation and some help and maybe go on a course, maybe do a Bible study with someone, maybe do a one-to-one. -one. Sometimes that's what they need. Some, however, refuse to believe. You can't get away from that. You know, there's a stubbornness and a hard-heartedness deep within the human makeup in who we are that causes many people to reject <coughs> Jesus. And it doesn't matter what you say or what you do, they've decided, they've refused to believe. And eventually the Apostle Paul has had enough. And he moves on. You know, if someone is not ready to believe, you can't force them to believe, can you? 
Some of us have discovered that through bitter experience. You can't make someone else believe. doesn't matter how much you love them. You can't force them to believe. You pray for them until they're ready. And then you tell them, and then they do believe. But Paul didn't give up on evangelism, all right? So, so I think that's the temptation, isn't it, sometimes? So something doesn't work, and you think, ah, oh, you know, forget this then. You know, we're so easily put off when failure comes our way. When there's opposition, when there's less success than we'd hoped. Maybe you invite someone along to a church service, or maybe at Christmas time and they didn't come. You think, oh, okay, well, I've done my evangelism for the year. That's it, then forget that for a bit. But Paul didn't give up. But he also didn't carry on with the same approach. So, so it, didn't, it didn't work, after a while, it didn't work hanging out in the synagogue and preaching. So, so he comes up with a new idea, all right? And the new idea is in verse 9. They take it into the public square and they start discussion groups. They had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. I think that's fascinating. So the, a couple of reasons. There's a, there's a general thing in the New Testament where... Um, the gospel is preached first to the Jews, and most of them, some of them receive Jesus as Messiah, most of them reject Jesus. And then uh, the gospel then goes out to the Gentiles instead. That's, that's all of us, I think, unless there's anybody here from a Jewish background. So the, the gospel then goes from, from the Jewish people, they collectively reject the Messiah, and the gospel then goes out to the Gentiles. Um, and it's going from the, the synagogue out into the public square, into the public lecture hall. It's a different strategy. So, so now the Apostle Paul isn't preaching anymore. Now it's discussion groups. They have these discussions daily, every day. They've got discussion groups happening in this public lecture theatre. I think that's really interesting. They basically start a Hope Explore group. They start Christianity Explored or whatever. You know, they start some community groups. And that's how they do their evangelism as well. And it's not just the Apostle Paul. It says he took the disciples with him. So this is a team activity. This is church planting through small groups. Church planting through community groups. And I know some of you, some of you, the idea of being involved in a church plant, you just think, that is terrifying. You know, what could I ever contribute to a church plant? But I bet you could. I bet, and I'm not announcing a church plant this morning, don't worry. <laughs> but I bet you could if we did one. You know, because I bet today, just as there was back then, there'd have had to be people who could lead Bible studies for sure. But there also needed to be people who could set out tables and chairs and people who could prepare some food and people who could wash up afterwards, people who could sweep the floors, uh, people who could pray, people who could um, hand out some flyers. They had flyers back then? I don't know. They hadn't invented printing by then. Maybe they, they wrote them out by hand and they were distributing flyers. I don't know. People to do that, people to give, to support the work financially, people to sweep floors. There would have been a lot of different jobs to do. And you could be involved in a church plant as well, maybe one day. Let's see. So, was that successful? So the second approach, second attempt, you bet it was. Look in verse 10. 
all this is this is mind blowing. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, right? So you saw the map earlier, okay? All the well, there's a bit of hyperbole here as well, I think. But all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Wow, that's how influential two years of small group evangelistic Bible study was in the biggest city in that area. People told other people, and they told other people, and words spread. And, and there were lots of miracles too. I'm sure that helped, okay? I'm sure that helped. And that, I, we're not going to talk about miracles today, but my theology of the miraculous is that those things tend to happen when the gospel is going out into new places. Ask me about it later if you want to. So, may, maybe today... Maybe today you feel like I'm talking about you. Maybe you're on the other end of that. And actually, maybe you would like to know Jesus better. You want to know Jesus more. Well, we just had, I don't know, 10 people up the front here who are small group leaders. This has all worked together very, very well. Uh, I wish I could say it was planned this way, but God has his way of doing these things sometimes. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, it might be that you, you've not, you're not refusing to believe. Actually, you do want to know more. Let me say to you, Christianity is best done in community. Christianity is best done in community. Christianity is not, is not best done on your own at home. It can be, and sometimes it has to be. And sometimes because of your work or whatever else, you don't have any choice. But Christianity works better in community <laughs> and to learn together. That's just the model we see in the scriptures again and again. So it's not too late to join Hope Explored. Please do join the community group if you haven't already. Okay, third thing. This church planting team are moved by the power of God. Verse 13 to 17. I love this little story. So it turns out there's a group of Jewish exorcists. Think, well, that sounds like a good story, doesn't it? Okay. <laughs> if you've ever met a Jewish exorcist before, but they existed. A, they had a team that went round driving out evil spirits. Uh, and um, uh, and uh, yeah, one day this team, seven, is it seven brothers, I think. Uh, 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 these seven guys, they take an absolute beating from a demon-possessed man. All right? So I guess they'd had a degree of success in the past, but, but this time they escape, it says, naked and bleeding. So just imagine what that must have looked like. All right? Not in too much detail, don't imagine it too much. But, you know, for, for, for seven guys to escape from a room with a demon-possessed guy, they escape naked and bleeding. Just imagine what might have happened in that room for that to occur, okay? And this demon says, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? <laughs> like, in other words, like, you're messing about with stuff you have no idea about, you Jewish guys. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. You know, I, rec- I, know, I know who Jesus is, I know who Paul is. <laughs> You're just messing around, you guys. And it says the whole city, Jews and Greeks, were filled with fear. The whole city 
It's terrified. I mean, for, for the Greeks, like these were the, the Greek people were people of rationality, science and philosophy and engineering. They just didn't have any way of processing what's just happened to these guys. And, and for the Jewish community there, like, you know, they, they must have realized we've hit the limits of, of what our belief system is capable of here. Quite clearly, there is a supernatural power in this demon-possessed man that has power that we do not have. So the whole city is terrified. And clearly, in this power structure, this power struggle that's going on, who's on top? This little fledgling church, because he says, I know Paul, and Jesus at the top. And, and as, as we work through the book of um, Ephesians, we're going to see these power dynamics again and again and again. It comes, I'd never noticed it until I really started studying this two or three weeks ago. Um, the, the theme of power just comes out of Ephesians again and again. I'll give you one, one, one example, or a couple of examples. Uh, Ephesians 1.19, it talks about God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, do you believe that today? Do you believe that there is incomparably like, power that you can't compare with anything else that is available to us who believe. In fact, it says that, set, that power is the same as the mighty strength. It's the same power that God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. <laughs> Do you believe that? Do you believe that power is available to Christians? And we're going to explore what that means. But he's, he's saying that there, that, oh, that's a lot of power, isn't it? There's a lot of power. Or Ephesians 3.16... I, Paul's praying for this, 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 these people in Asia. He says, I, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So he's, that's his prayer form, that they might be strengthened, their inner being might be strengthened through the spirit of God. Or a little bit later on, uh, Ephesians 3.20 now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his... That's an amazing phrase in itself, isn't it? Uh, to, to the God who can do immeasurably more, like vastly more, you can't even measure it, more than you can even imagine, never mind ask, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever, amen. You know? Surely, if that power is available to us, that would make a change in our lives. I'm not sure we truly believe that's true. I think British people, especially, are mostly like the Greeks. The science and philosophy and rationality. Well, as we go through the book of Ephesians, we're going to see the power of God. We're going to see that Jesus has power to defeat even the strongest forces of evil. I'm, I'm, I'm going to change microphone in a minute, guys. Um, and e even the tell me what. Okay. 
as we go through the book of Ephesians, we're going to see the power of God to change hearts, <laughs> to defeat the evil that lurks within each of us as well. That's perhaps the most dangerous evil. We like to think of evil as being out there somewhere. The most dangerous evil is evil in here. <laughs> the power of God is there to change that as well. Okay, let's move on. Uh, a team serious about holy living. Right, let's look at the effect of all this stuff on these believers. Verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. So the church see all this stuff going on. As church plants, they see these seven guys get beaten to a pulp. Uh, and they see the power of God. And they just realise, you know, we've got to get serious about this. You know, we're not messing around anymore. This is, some kind of cultural Christianity will not do. This is not going to be a, a social club for religious people. I think sometimes even as a Christian... We can be complacent. We can be complacent about sin. We can allow stuff from our past or our present to come in and even end up living a double life. You know, we can do that as believers. We can end up living almost a double life as the church face on a Sunday morning. And then there's actually what your family and your workmates see during the week. So what did they do? Verse 19, a number who had practised sorcery. Now, I, I don't imagine there are many ex-sorcerers in the room. There may be, in view of what I, particularly in view of what I said uh, a few weeks ago about Stoke-on-Trent. Um, uh, actually, I know there are one or two, actually. Um, but there are people who, who, were, um, who had practised sorcery. They brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So they've got these documents about the pagan gods, all right? About rituals, about, I don't know, I don't know much about this stuff. Whatever you, whatever you have them, pagan sorcery scrolls, all this incantations and spells or whatever else it is. But they, the point is that it's in opposition to Jesus Christ. It's stuff from the past. And now they're confronted with the power of God. Their consciences are screaming at them. You, can, you cannot hold this alongside faith in Jesus. We've got to get rid of this stuff. And that's the point. We've got to get rid of it. It's not they just say, oh, we'll use this stuff a bit less. We'll do a bit less of that stuff. No, 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 they burn them. There's no going back. <laughs> Gone for good. This is going to be a new start. I'm, I'm going to have a new identity. I belong to Christ now. Whatever it is that stands in the way between me and him needs to go. He is my new identity. I, I love the idea, and I don't know, I'm kind of imagining this really. But I love the idea of them going to the library of Celsus. And these believers taking their scrolls off the shelves in the library of Celsus that you saw on the screen earlier. And saying to the other people around, look, I'm really sorry, but I've got to get rid of these. And making a bonfire on the plaza outside. You know, I think that's quite conceivable. That may well be what happened. I wonder today, is there stuff that's holding you back? Is there stuff that 
you know is in opposition to your faith in Christ. Now, sometimes there are things that are unavoidable that make faith in Christ difficult. You might have a job that requires you to work on a Sunday. And you don't have any choice about that. What can you do? That, I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about things that you do have a choice about. You know, things that you know that you are holding on to in your heart that harm your relationship with the Lord. In my early days as a Christian, which is going back a while now, I had to get rid of a load of music. I was a big music fan in my teenage years. I had a lot, a lot, a lot of CDs, which as a teenager, they were worth a lot of money to me. I worked very hard to buy those CDs. Some of those I remember destroying, like physically destroying, rather than selling or just getting rid of, because I had mates who liked the same music. I could have sold them, but I thought, you know what, I just need to... I didn't burn them, because actually if you burn a CD, Make some really bad smells and bad chemicals. I did try that once. Um, but you can smash them quite effectively. Um, and that's what I had to do. There were some songs that had lyrics that were mocking my faith now. There was some stuff that I was into that was deliberately anti-Christian. And stuff that was explicitly sinful in various different ways. I just need to get rid of it. I remember I, I, I had to get rid of video games as well. And some people, it's not the same for everyone, you know. But for me, I, by the age of 21, 22, it started to dominate my life. You know, I used to get in from work, put on the computer, start gaming. And I, 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 it just made me grumpy. It made me grumpy, which then made the wife grumpy. Uh, and I just knew that, um, and, and it, it took so much time, you know, I didn't have, didn't have time to read the Bible anymore, and, um, and I, and I was, cause I, it made, made me tired, and, and I just thought, you know, I've just got to get rid of this, I, I can't just reduce this a bit, I've got to cut it out. And so my favourite game, Microsoft Age of Empires, which some of you will know, has never been played on my computer ever since. I took it off the computer and it was gone for good. It's always costly. Oh, and by the way, if you don't have internet filters on your internet as a Christian, you're mad. <laughs> it's so easy to do. Phone your ISP, I'll stick a filter on it for you. If you haven't got that, you're asking for trouble. It's always costly to put Christ first, isn't it? In, in, in Ephesus, the total value of their scrolls, it says 50,000 drachmas. And most of us think, huh? Okay, so a dra drachma was, was a day's wages. Okay, if you do the calculations, it's about 4.6 million pounds in today's money. All right, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Okay, that sounds a lot more, doesn't it? 4.6 million pounds sounds a lot more than 50,000 drachmas. Well, let me tell you, it was worth every penny. Whatever you might lose to gain Christ is worth it. It doesn't matter how great that, the, the cost of that loss. It doesn't matter how much that loss is. If it causes you to gain Christ, it's worth it. Jesus said that knowing him is a bit like a, a jeweler or a merchant one day looking for the, the finest pearls. And 
And one day he finds the biggest, most beautiful, most perfect pearl he has ever come across in his whole career. And he goes away and he sells everything else so he can have that one. Because nothing else compares, nothing else matters compared to the surpassing worth of having him. If you lose all things and gain Christ, you've won. It's not worth letting anything get in, your, get in the way of your relationship with the Lord Jesus. We're nearly done. I mentioned this one right at the end. Their community was changed. All of this, verse 23, caused a great disturbance. Now, we didn't read this earlier, but if you've got a Bible in front of you, the, the title in the NIV is The Riot in Ephesus. Okay, kind of see where that's going, can't you? So, um... You know what it's like at tourist attractions, where uh, they always there is always people there, isn't there, who want to sell you some stuff, some tourist tat, <laughs> you know, like a little trinket or a little key ring or or souvenirs or little models of the Eiffel Tower or whatever it might be. I imagine at the Temple of Artemis, you had exactly that as well. I'm sure you could get a little model of the the Temple of Artemis, a little Artemis idol, a little mini idol, idol of Artemis, a key ring, fridge magnet. Probably didn't have fridge magnets. But um, you, I'm sure you could buy all that stuff just outside the Temple of Artemis. Uh, and the next section in the passage in Acts 19, just it talks about a guy called Demetrius. Demetrius is a leader among the silversmiths. Okay? So, and for, the, and for them, for the silversmiths, business had become very bad. Because the Apostle Paul was turning people away from idols, away from the temple of Artemis, and towards Jesus. So for the guys who were selling the little trinkets and the key rings and everything else, that was bad news, all right? And even it says, verse 27, he, so this is, this is what Art, um, Demetrius says, the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty if Paul carries on the way he is. <laughs> Top tip, by the way. If your God is taken down a notch because people stop buying the tourist tat, <laughs> then probably your God's not that good. But anyway. So um, what was happening is the gospel was basically killing paganism. The gospel was killing paganism. Verse 28, they were furious and they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Egyptians. This is our identity, you know, it's our temple, our God. You know, great is Artemis of the, Egypt, of the Ephesians. And soon the whole city was in uproar. And the crowd seized Paul's friends and they rushed into the theatre together. Ah, you see, we mentioned the theatre earlier on, didn't we? So they rushed them into the theatre together. You've seen the photo. And in verse 34, they all shouted in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That must have been absolutely terrifying from this little church plant. You know, imagine there's, I don't know, a few dozen of you, and you, you grabbed and manhandled into the, the public theatre with 24,000 people shouting at you. And Paul wants to speak to the crowds, but his friends probably wisely say, no chance, they'll only kill you if you do. Um, and eventually the city clerk, who sounds like a very wise man, calms everyone down 
and everyone goes home. The point is, you can see the impact that Christianity was having on this city. It was changing society. It was changing what people believed. It was changing how people spent their money. It was changing how people, uh, what jobs people did. And verse 20 sums it up very nicely. We're right at the end. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And in verse 26, large numbers of people in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia started to follow Jesus. And that's where the book of Ephesians comes in. It's written to those people in the city of Ephesus and Asia, ancient um, Roman Asia, who were following Jesus. One last thing to show you. You know, that is what's left of the Temple of Artemis. (laughs) The picture I showed you earlier was a a mock-up. That's what's actually left of it today. And it's, in fact, it's not even, I think there's a, 128 columns or something, massive great columns, that's not one of them. That's a composite of all the bits they could find. That's literally all that's left, and they just stuck them all together on top of each other. Essentially, the power of the spirit and the ideas of Christianity overthrew Greek philosophy and the pagan gods. Jesus won. Jesus won. The question in our day is, who's winning? We know that Jesus is the king, the final victor, don't we? But in our society, I'm not sure that Christianity is winning. Friends, we need to get back to the basics. As believing people, this is what I'm leaving you with, first Sunday of the year, all right? We need to get back to the basics of believers having Jesus at the centre, being devoted to evangelism seeing the power of God and living holy lives, just like they did. And then we'll see our society change for the better. Let's pray, shall we? Have a moment of quiet for you to respond in your own heart to what we've heard. Lord, we're grateful to those who brought Jesus to us. We're grateful for those who have supported this church and others financially over decades. We're grateful for those who've given their time and their energy and effort to see Jesus lifted up and souls saved. We're grateful for those who did that for us. Thank you for those who've gone before us. We recognise that we stand on the shoulders of others who've gone before But Lord, at the start of this new year, we want to recognise the dangers of complacency. The temptation to get comfortable, to settle down, to let others do the hard work of evangelism. The temptation to compromise 
our speech, our attitudes, our behaviour. Help us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, we thank you for our church plants, Hope Church. And we pray your blessing on all their endeavours. And we pray for your protection from the forces of evil. And we ask again that in time, maybe we would plant again by your grace and for your glory. Help us, Lord, we pray in 2024 to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen.